Welcome to First Field, a podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management, demand response, and the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and this week I'm joined by two guests. First up, we welcome Francesca Muscovich back to the show. Frankie is National Policy Manager for Sustainability and Regulatory Affairs at the Property Council of Australia. Welcome, Frankie. Welcome. Thanks, Luke. I said welcome to you. <laughs> I'm feeling welcome. You're feeling welcome. It's all good. Yep. And we also have First Fuel Mainstay Tenant Reid with us, who of course leads on energy, environment and climate policy at Australian Industry Group. Welcome, Tenant. Welcome to you too. <laughs> We're so welcome at this point. We're taking over your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it was going to happen eventually. We, we all know that. Now, it is no accident that it's you two that I've invited to join me this week because you are two of the biggest US political tragics I know. And our topic today is the outcome of the US presidential election and in particular the implications for energy and climate policy in the US and around the world. Uh, now, after a fairly torturous few days counting ballots, we finally saw Joe Biden and Kamala Harris declared winners over the weekend. Um, but before we dig into it all, I thought I might just start with getting your initial reactions to what everyone agrees is a historic election. I might start with you, Frankie. Well, I think as uh, the three of us would do, we, we look at the outcomes of those elections uh, with a particular view on how it impacts our, our various policy priorities mm. and climate sort of been pretty much front and centre uh, in the debate alongside the handling of coronavirus over in the States, which presents a, a marked contrast um, to the way that that's been managed in Australia. Uh, but looking at uh, Biden's victory, uh, which it, it looks to be uh, fairly clear at this point, um, the prospect of I think a much more forward-leaning stance internationally uh, would, would be welcome uh, by us at the, at the Property Council and, and a number of industries, I think, in Australia. Uh, but I think the, the big question mark is over how much he'll be able to do uh, in the executive branch with the possibility of the Senate uh, being retained by Republicans. But that's sort of still uh, in the balance uh, because we're looking at two runoff elections in the, the glorious state of Georgia, which I think mm. a few weeks ago none of us would have predicted would become the centre of the political universe. Um, but there you are. The beating heart of US politics, and uh, we're becoming very familiar with local political figures like Stacey Abrams and the like in the midst of all that and all the work that she's done locally to organise. And But, Frankie, you make, a, you make a really good point around the way that climate figured in the, the presidential debates in a way that simply wasn't the case if you go back you know uh, the last few cycles it's um really interesting that it emerged as, as such a distinct co topic of conversation both in terms of biden trying to champion his leadership on climate but also uh, trump trying to explain why that championing was a very b bad idea for the u.s and I think um, if you if you look at the Biden plan, and I, I I thought they did a really smart thing in one having formed a bit of a task force uh, led by John Kerry and uh, AOC or Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, uh, bringing the the more progressive left and and the sort of centre part of uh, the Democrats together to consider a, a climate platform. It's very much I think framed now around 
uh, America's recovery, uh, particularly from COVID, but the recession that they find themselves in now as a result of that. So I find that a you know a really interesting um, thing to look at uh, in terms of how that's been positioned there, uh, especially the order of the things that they're. Um, mm-hmm. They're committing to the the energy sector always figures front and center at the expense of almost everything else in the domestic uh, conversation. Mm. But if you look at the way that uh, Biden and Harris's uh, platform is presented, the number one thing is around uh, modern infrastructure mm. and uh, bringing up their uh, auto industry into sort of world leading twenty first century competitiveness. And then, you know, not too far behind is uh, one of our favourite topics around uh, energy-efficient buildings. But it's really framed around job creation Mm. and a a certain focus on uh, the strength of domestic manufacturing and keeping jobs local and within the states. And I think that that ought to have helped them uh, in this election, that messaging. Well, it certainly um, is striking how, as you say, holistic the plan is. It's thinking through what that transition means for different parts of the economy. Now, noting there's it's an election platform, so there's a lot of detail to be fleshed out, but they're at least thinking in that holistic way, which is, which is a sensible place to start. Tennant, did you want to give us your initial reactions to the uh, to the uh, election win on the weekend? Yeah, so um, I think the, the two observations uh, that I would have is uh, people in the US and out of the US uh, have a greater appreciation than before of the value of investing in infrastructure that allows you to count elections a bit faster uh, and be uh, a bit less thrown left and right and up and down by the Brownian motion of the the voting pool. Mm, mm. Uh, But the second thing is Australia and the US are in some ways very different polities, uh, very different systems, but I think the US is experiencing currently something that uh, we went through last year, which is the collision of a whole set of expectations about what everyone knew was going to happen mm. based on polling with the only poll that matters. Mm. Uh, and uh, the um, the reactions uh, that... Uh, people have had have really, really been shaped by this uh, incredibly stable polling lead that uh, that Biden and the Democrats had for uh, the last year. It went up a bit, it went down a bit, really very, very stable. It appeared to be presaging a blue wave and, uh, uh, you know, an FDR-sized presidency and a fundamental transformation. And... Uh, it is quite possible that that was actually never going to happen. Mm. Uh, not that you know some choice or other of the two campaigns in the in the cast, uh, last couple of months or the closing week made all the difference, but possibly everybody was pitching themselves against something that was just not actually there. Mm. There'll be a lot of pouring over the entrails of this election and people trying to spin uh, the results to support what they always said was was the answer. 
but we should be very careful about uh, buying into any of that. And well, certainly until all the counting is actually done, <laughs> uh, and it's going to be a long time before really deep analysis of um, what different demographics and regions and so on really did and really thought in all of this. It's certainly a reminder to us all not to be too certain about anything in politics. Well, there's certainly a lot of hot takes floating around, Tenet. But uh, look, if we if we focus in on the climate and energy um, elements of this, because uh, I know um, getting you, Tenet, you, Frankie, and myself on a call, we could well spend an hour just sort of picking apart the the political elements of this, but uh, we are on first fuel. We should probably focus in on uh, on some of our day jobs. Uh, Frankie's kind of given her sort of take on the Biden plan. Tenant, did you have some some thoughts you wanted to share about um, where where Biden is headed in 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 the sense on that climate and energy agenda? So it has absolutely been striking how much airtime climate has had in the the, the messages that uh, the Biden can campaign and Biden himself have chosen to to send. I mean, Al Gore in 2000 had a lot less to say about climate change than, uh, than Joe Biden in 2020. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's in the, the, you know, the top handful of priorities. Uh, they, they return to it again and again. Uh, I think we, we should absolutely expect this to be the focus of a lot of action, but the question uh the question is both uh, what is possible but also whether the configurations of what's possible are going to change the nature of what's pursued. And what I mean by that is that uh, the uh, a lot of the, the juice in the push for climate in Democrat uh, politics and, and left of centre politics in the US in the past year or two has mm. been under this rubric of the Green New Deal, which Biden notably did not adopt specifically. And why he didn't in, in large part is because the Green New Deal is fusing stuff that I think many of us would say is directly related to um, fighting climate change and doing an energy transformation and all of that with a social welfare and a social justice agenda that its advocates argue is intimately linked to it and one and the same thing and strikes others as like trying to smuggle in a, a very large for the US controversial agenda alongside mm. something that mm. on its face isn't uh, related to it. Now uh, we'll, we'll get into the, the guts of what isn't, isn't possibly possible, uh, but given the fact that a lot of the Congressional Democratic Party is uh, not as um, as progressive or, or left uh, as the proponents of the Green New Deal, uh, is it going to be, uh, are we going to see some severance of those agendas uh, and maybe more consideration of the sorts of uh, centrists what used to be centrist climate policies, including carbon pricing, which has got very little airtime mm. in um, in any of these discussions over the past couple of years, really. So you, you sort of characterise the conversations that have been having, happening on the left of politics. Um, what's your read on the on on where the right of politics is in the U- US? Obviously, um, there was a heady strain of climate denialism running through the Trump 
administration. That is not a view that's u- universally held in Republican circles, but it is a is a um, a more difficult issue um, for the right of politics in the US than it is for the left. Um, what's your read on where that conversation is at, Tenant? It's a complicated place uh, in in the US right and centre right. Uh, and there have been some very prominent uh, Republican and conservative figures pushing over the past few years for a rethink on climate and uh, the uh, adoption of conservative solutions to climate, including revenue neutral um, carbon pricing, uh, coupled with tax cuts and uh, uh, an end to uh, some of the forms of carbon regulation pursued by um, by previous administrations. Hmm. Now, that, that group has been notable for not including a heck of a lot of current elected Republican officials, mm. eminences of the past and uh, people from the think tank world and people from business instead. Uh, so we will see if that comes to anything. I would uh, just add two things, which is we did see in the last Congress um, under the Trump administration, we saw uh, the passage of extremely uh, ambitious tax supports for carbon capture and storage and utilisation projects, uh, like very, um, very substantial supports. Uh, we saw some surprising stuff happen, some increases to uh, the uh, the budgets for uh, some relevant agencies. Uh, we saw the continuation of um, the uh, energy ARPA, uh, the Advanced Research Projects Agency. Uh, so, you know, th- there was there was a lot of rhetorical stuff and there was a lot of stuff happening in the everyday business of government that was a bit different to that. Mm. Uh, and while today uh, Mitt Romney has um, made uh, made comments in the course of, you know, saying where, where are Republicans at, uh, saying, well, we, we're going to get, we should get behind the president, but we should... Uh, oppose the ending of coal and oil and gas. Mm. Yeah, they will be finding their feet for a little while, and I think for the moment they've, they're working out exactly how they feel about contesting the election or not. Yeah, they've probably got other things on their mind for at least for the next few weeks, Tenet. It's probably fair to say. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, way, all the way through to uh, inauguration day, I think. Indeed. But what, what Tennant's sort of uh, flagging here, Frankie, is it goes to this question of what's possible and what are the levers that will be available to a, a Biden administration. So um, uh, we sort of flagged those runoff elections that will be taking place in Georgia. I'm not an expert on Georgia politics, I, but I understand that it's a relative long shot that the Democrats would win um, both of those elections and therefore have a, a 50, 50 seats in the Senate, which with a um, cast vote from the vice president would, would give them effectively a majority. Um, so what's your read on, on how a Biden administration might go about uh, implementing its agenda, noting, of course, that um, President Obama did, did quite a bit um, with similar set of constraints in the last six years of his presidency? Well, I think your assessment that it 
it'll be unlikely for the Democrats to control the Senate is a pretty good one. Um, you've got two senatorial runoffs in Georgia. One was quite a, a high-profile contest between um, the incumbent Republican David Perdue and the uh, pretty charismatic um, Democrat John Ossoff. And there will be no shortage of money, I think, that the Democrats won't throw uh, at trying to win those races over the next month. I think they happen in the first week of January, the 5th or the 6th or something like that. And, and I think uh, Democrats have Stacey Abrams uh, to thank for a lot of the, the groundwork that she did uh, in her campaign uh, for governor. Failed campaign, we should say, but she came quite close uh, in what has been traditionally a very red state. So uh, looking at looking at that, so the prospect that they may win one of those, I think it would be highly unlikely for them to win both. Uh, you still have to consider that there are a couple of senators there that are, um, well, at least one, and, and I forget the guy's name, but he's a, he's a Democrat in name only. I think Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin. Yeah. Who, who cut an ad shooting a climate bill with a rifle in 2010. That's right. <laughs> so so I, I, I think uh, we can't even just uh, simply ap- apply the rubric of Democrat and Republican um, yeah, yeah. in the Senate. So, so assuming it will be very hard uh, to pass legislation through both houses, um, one automatically jumps to uh, the prospect of executive action through through orders. But my inkling in the first instance, so I think the first real test will be to see whether Biden will be able to pass some form of economic stimulus uh, bill that could tie in some measures that, you know, perhaps not framed in the language of climate action, but would but would contribute in those areas. So we've seen uh, Trump basically walk away from negotiations on a on a on a stimulus bill. Who knows if if he'll get back to thinking about managing the pandemic in the next couple of months? If there's every prospect that Biden comes into to the office of president uh, with with no kind of large economic stimulus bill having been passed, and and there is an opportunity, I think, there mm. uh, to to include measures that go to you know some of the top line items he's talking about there around uh, infrastructure investment, uh, really framing it mm. around the job creation space. And then the details to be hashed out, you know, would, would require, uh, you know, aspiration on performance and, and, and you know, emissions benefits and the like. So in the near term, I, I think that that is an opportunity and perhaps it will be something uh, he can he can wedge Republicans on, noting that they've you know, sat on it and and not progressed much and people will be hurting. Um, You know, imagine the state of our domestic economy right now if we hadn't passed JobKeeper, um, you know, when we did and the number of people that that might be unemployed. So I think there will be enormous pressure uh, on the Congress to provide some form of um, stimulus that will help support jobs. So I think that's the first opportunity. Then, then in the longer term, and and I guess just noting they'll have a second bite of the chariot, the midterms in a couple of years to get more um, more spots in the Senate. 
um, there's the prospect of executive order. So while I was sort of reading a bit about this, so some of the areas uh, where Biden would have the most leverage would be in things like government procurement contracts um, that can be done through, mm. through those kind of actions. So interestingly, that brings to the fore, you know, one of our pet subjects around, um, you know, government building retrofits, for example, mm. which features highly uh, in, in his um, climate plan around, around infrastructure, but also, you know, reducing the cost of, of government on taxpayers. Which was also a really key theme of the Obama stimulus in 2009. It was supporting particularly local and state governments to upgrade their their government buildings and public buildings. Um, so a, a move with some precedent, Frankie. Yeah, and, and then so that there's, I guess, age, other agencies that, you know, where he as executive um, perhaps has a little more sway. So there's, there's one federal agency that doesn't get much of a mention. It's called the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and the, the rubric of that is much more around economic uh, management rather than environment. Um, so, so there's and, – and I believe that they in the past have, you know um, – made recommendations around carbon pricing and the like, um, but very much from a, an economic perspective. Tenant will know more on that than I would. There's a recent work uh, on um, how should federal regulators treat and try to um, to uh, connect between state and multi-state systems that have carbon pricing and, and states that don't, and uh, this work is, is rumoured to be one of the reasons why uh, the deputy chair was fired by the uh, Trump administration just the day after the election. <laughs> the situation is unclear. It evolves. I, I imagine that that's uh, very similar across numerous portfolios. But but what Tennant's point also goes to is, um, you know, one of um, – one of uh, Biden's powers is to is to make sure that the institutions that progress, you know, um, BAU policy making, um, are done so, uh, you know, according to the best principles uh, and and with the right sort of people heading those departments. So, you know, whatever can be done under under the rubric of BAU uh, with with new leadership would play a role there. Um, the other one I think to mention, and, and perhaps it's, it's more on the investment side, but um, the the role of the SEC, uh, which is like our ASIC, I guess, um, mm. has also been putting commentary out um, aligned with the task force for climate-related financial disclosures. And so, you know, pressure on companies to be uh, reporting climate risk, um, you know, on their bottom lines w- will increase as well. And, and, and Biden support for that will give strength to their arm there. Um, so I guess in closing, so there's, you know, there's possibilities there through executive action, much like uh, what Obama did. Uh, but uh, given the US is a glorious federation like ours as well, uh, he may also choose to strike up um, partnerships and deals with, with the states that he can work with uh, because they do have, um, as in Australia, you know, a, a lot of the levers at, at their disposal at the state government level too. 
Um, Frankie makes a really good point, Tenant, around executive action likely to be um, one of the key levers that uh, the Biden administration utilises to uh, to move this agenda forward. Um, do you have concerns about, I guess, the durability of action taken uh, by the executive without a process that is is worked through through the legislature. I guess one of the concerns I have um, is 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 around sort of this ping ponging backwards and forwards from Republican and, and Democratic you know, administrations in the US and and what what that means for the ability f- for the US to uh, really get their arms around the kind of transformation that um, would be required for them to, to meet some of the goals that President-elect Biden is uh, laying out. So absolutely, there's, there's a lot of hairs on this issue uh, of executive action. The uh, incoming Biden administration will be able to take out of the bottom drawer uh, the regulatory action that the Obama administration either had uh, put in place or was well advanced putting in place on regulation of power sector emissions, uh, tighter fuel economy standards for uh, cars uh, and uh, methane emission uh, restrictions for the oil and gas sector. Uh, and they may wish to revisit aspects of those, consider changes in circumstances, but there's some well-developed stuff there that had been uh, reversed or suspended or replaced uh, in the course of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And uh, the ping-ponging risk is is absolutely real. Uh, I add two complications, which is that, firstly, uh, the lifting of some of the Obama rules had less effect than you would have uh, thought because industry had uh, already responded in the power sector. Mm, uh, industry mm. had already responded to um, to mercury limits uh, by either closing plants or installing scrubbers, and though you know, closed plants did not reopen. And, and, and they didn't take the scrubbers off, tenant. They did not, <laughs> indeed. Uh, so we, we may see less uh, change in the facts on the ground than in regulations from administration to administration. The other thing, though, is every regulatory step that the next administration takes will be contested in the courts, mm. just like every regulatory step of the current administration. Uh, and the makeup of the courts has shifted significantly uh, over the course of the uh, the Trump years. Uh, so it remains to be seen uh, whether that will greatly complicate the the job of uh, these uh, these regulations. The um, the the trend in conservative jurisprudence uh, over recent years has been to. Uh, grant greater presidential uh, authority over um, agencies and uh, greater presidential discretion in some respects, but also to uh, take a uh, a much more um, uh, hostile line to the delegation of authority from uh, by legislation to uh, regulatory agencies. Uh, and also not a particularly sympathetic reading of any uh, errors or contradictions or uh, issues that arise in the drafting of the legislation. 
So the the outcome might be uh, that we see uh, maybe reversal of some of the court decisions that supported the existing regulatory regime, Uh, most notably the Massachusetts and EPA decision at the tail end of the Bush administration, which found the Environment Protection Agency had an obligation to uh, to regulate greenhouse gas emissions if it determined they were a threat to human health. Uh, probably those decisions won't be reversed, but what we may well see is that if there are any uh, chinks in the armour of the Clean Air Act or other pieces of legislation... Uh, that those provisions are struck down and the court says over to Congress to fix this Mm. and the question will be is Congress capable of fixing anything? Mm. Mm. And the fact that it is quite hard to do things in Congress is why past Congresses have delegated so much rulemaking authority to the presidency and to the agencies. It sort of brings us right back to where we started, which is the the situation in, in the Senate and the the fact that, in a sense, um, uh, uh, President-elect Biden has has run on his ability to work across the aisle, and uh, I think he's going to have the opportunity to put that theory of government to the test. Absolutely. If you like first fuel, you'll love the Energy Efficiency Council's National Energy Efficiency Conference, delivered virtually from the twenty fourth to the twenty sixth of November, twenty twenty. This year's conference features an unprecedented lineup of global experts like former European Commissioner for Climate Action, Connie Hedegaard, and the International Energy Agency's Dr. Brian Motherway, as well as local leaders like Angus Taylor, Mark Butler, Lily D'Ambrosio, Zali Stegel, and many more. Full conference and one-day tickets are available, along with Early Bird and EEC member discounts. To find out more, visit eec.org.au forward slash conference. We could talk for hours just on the uh, the intricacies of US politics, the three of us, but we should probably start talking about the, the broader implications. Um, the prospect of the US rejoining the Paris Agreement is a pretty significant development. Uh, Tenant, you know your way around a conference of parties. How is this going to change the dynamic at the COP that's due to take place in Glasgow towards the end of next year? Yeah, unless something happens between now and this time next year, and how eventful could one year be? <laughs> uh, but it, it's certainly a boost to the atmosphere of um, of those events and of the negotiations. Uh, I uh, I retweeted a, a video the other day of former uh, UN FCCC Executive Secretary Christiana Figueres jumping up and down and dancing for joy in a circle at the news that the uh, the US would rejoin the Paris Agreement. Mm. Uh, and um, the US has remained engaged in the last four years in the negotiations, broadly playing uh, a constructive role uh, on almost all topics and typically with uh, the same people who were doing negotiations for them under the Obama administration uh, mm. at, uh, at most levels. Uh, but there is an enormous difference between uh, a um, an international arena where the biggest power in the world 
is throwing its shoulder to the wheel in trying to get an outcome versus one that is uh, rhetorically uh, suspicious of the whole thing and at an operational level just in cruise control. Mm. Uh, It's very different. Uh, And that is particularly important for a diplomatic process uh, uh, over the past couple of years, but especially this year to come, that is focused on getting everybody to go beyond what they've already committed to. I think uh, the, the US role will be quite important there. And the president has a great deal more leeway in foreign affairs. Mm. And as we found in the last four years in trade, uh, than in a lot of domestic policy. And um, entering uh, the fray again, as it were, um, in an environment that not has not been stagnant over the last four years, but as you say, there's been progress being made and, and most recently uh, net zero commitments um, from, from China, South Korea and Japan. Um, and so a sense of growing momentum, I think, in that space. Uh, yeah, it's been remarkable in the, the, the rash of announcements in the last uh, month or so. Uh, And, of course, Europe in the process of uh, deepening its own uh, 2050 and 2030 commitments uh, and developing a carbon border adjustment mechanism, a a carbon tariff, Mm. if you will. The the details will be be a bit different to what that would imply. Uh, That is really concentrating a lot of minds in, uh, in, in business internationally on how all that's going to work. It's concentrating minds here in Australia about how our trade relationships are going to be affected Mm. uh, by uh, not only the uh, issue of diplomatic pressure or otherwise, but just what's going to happen to the demand for the things that we currently export and and what demand is opening up for things like hydrogen that maybe uh, we can become an exporter of. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, It's a very... Uh, dynamic environment and uh, the uh, Australia has got uh, a lot to to catch up with. Um, now, will the, uh, the 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 Biden administration be uh, uh, wrapping Australia over the knuckles or taking us to task? Or you know, I don't I don't think it's going to look exactly like that. We're very strong allies. Uh, mm. Australia is is well respected in America and in uh, on both sides of politics. Uh, but we did see quite a bit of pressure from the Obama administration uh, on Australia in 2014 and 2015 in the lead-up to the Paris Agreement, and it was pretty effective. Mm. And uh, I would be surprised if... We didn't see some of that again. Mm. What about you, Frankie? What's your sense of where they're heading into Glasgow, which is all around, all about sort of ambition and, and, and ramping up ambition? Um, one would think that uh, the US being in in a more positive space has, has got to be a good thing. Yeah, well, by the time that um, COP rolls around with the US, you, you'll then have every member of the G7 plus the EU having committed to, to net zero by 2050. And as we've talked about, one of the focuses of that COP is not just about that longer term prospect, which is the argument we hear playing out domestically uh, when Scott Morrison's pushed on adopting a net zero by 2050 target or not. It's also about ratcheting up, as Tennant said, our short term commitments uh, around 2030. 
and right now, I really don't know that we can uh, point to the effectiveness of the policies that have been in place um, the last few years uh, under the coalition government as getting us to at least uh, – at the very least, the current level uh, of ambition, 26 to 28%. Without the use of carryover credits, um, and I think there will be a lot of pushback uh, from the international community on that. Uh, I think Tenet might correct me, but we are still the only country that's proposing to use those. Yes, we are. So, so I think you know all this points to we will be you know increasingly isolated out there uh, without the you know without a longer term target around 2050 uh, solidified and having probably one of the the weaker uh, shorter term commitments, particularly uh, if using carryover credit. So, uh, I agree with Tennant, and I I hark back to. Obama's comments when he was out here for one of the summits, it might have been APEC um, in mm. Brisbane. And he, in Brisbane. Yeah, that's right. And he made some very strong comments, um, I think, around, you know, us having an interest in preserving things like the Great Barrier Reef. And um, it will be interesting to see what kind of a line Biden takes if he so, you know, wishes to, to put that kind of um, – you know, soft diplomacy pressure on um, through comments like that. So I think we can expect to see all of that. I thought it was interesting uh, over the weekend to see Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd's comments on, uh, well, pro- possibly quite predictable given their previous roles in, in climate policy, but really urging Scott Morrison to use this moment uh, and the political cover it, it provides uh, to pivot. Uh, especially when there's a, a large cohort of the Australian business community that's supporting uh, the adoption of a net zero by 2050 target. So I think all the conditions are, are right. I don't see the you know the evidence um, you know of this coalition you know re- really are of a mind to change because of um, you know different international circumstances. But the the environment they're going to face at that COP next year is different to what they've faced in the last few years, and, and the pressure will be greater. Mm. It was quite a remarkable interview uh, on Insiders on, on Sunday morning for, for listeners that, that haven't caught it, um, with uh, a, a, a double header with uh, Malcolm Turnbull and, and Kevin and Kevin Rudd. Um, I think they uh, they prefaced almost every statement with uh, I don't agree with Kevin on much, or I don't agree with Malcolm on much, and they proceeded to agree on absolutely everything over the course of the interview. <laughs> uh, I don't know how minded uh, Prime Minister Morrison is to take advice from Kevin Rudd and, and Malcolm Turnbull, but I guess uh, we'll wait and see. Uh, Tennant, how do you see uh, this, uh, this growing pressure at the international level being translated into um, the domestic political scene here in Australia? Well, there's uh, obviously uh, people on uh, on all sides of politics who are taking note and, and paying attention and reacting for or against that. I, I would just say that we've got a, a process in place at the national level of developing a long-term strategy for emissions reduction. That process has been running for a little while. It is meant to be complete by this time next year for uh, to, to take uh, that uh, strategy to the, the Glasgow Summit. 
and that's a great opportunity mm. to consider what has changed, consider the uh, the uh, both the the opportunity uh, that's represented by a deeper global ambition and the the pressure uh, that that comes from that, and reposition our commitments, reposition our policy. Um, there's, a, there's a lot in that and I would not be surprised if the government didn't rush that process, mm. but it's the obvious place to start for taking all of that into account. So, um, you know, the, the vehicle is there, uh, ready to be driven. A lot is shifting and it's shifting very quickly. We, we referenced those, some of those other commitments um, in, in Japan and, and uh, South Korea and the like. Um, obviously, this is another development um, with the election of uh, a Biden administration. Um, there'll be a lot to observe, uh, absorb uh, for the government um, in terms of what that uh, shifting strategic landscape means for them. And, um, and ultimately, uh, a, a lot of the calculations are likely to be driven by how they see that global environment translated into um, public opinion and public expectations here in Australia. Um, because ultimately I think that will be the, the primary driver, um, the, the domestic sphere. The global sphere important, but um, the, domestic, the domestic sphere um, uh, overwhelmingly um, decisive in that decision-making process. I mean, Luke, on, on that front, you've got a couple of important uh, developments that we should think about there as well. So we've just had the final report handed down um, from the Royal, the, the Federal Royal Commission into uh, national natural disaster arrangements. I always, uh, I always trip on that. Uh, well, the Bushfire Royal Commission. You did better than I could have. <laughs> well, and and while it doesn't, you know, include recommendations that go to broader climate policy, it, it the climate change and commentary around the impacts and expected impacts of that over time permeates through the through that report, and there are some you know, quite constructive practical recommendations in there that go to that. So the government will need to be considering its response to that. Uh, there's also uh, the climate change mitigation and adaptation bill that the independent MPs, Ali Stegall, has tabled in Parliament uh, today uh, that, that that is uh, contributing to, uh, you know, a, a, a higher degree of conversation and focus on that uh, domestically. She was very well uh, supported by her local electorate um, in the last election and that having been a pretty high-profile race as well. Mm. And, and she's, you know, I think been very strategic in trying to work with business groups, um, you know, consumer groups as well, and, and put forward what's a pretty sensible, uh, you know, high-level framework and place to start the discussion. So whilst I don't think, uh, you know, the government will feel pressure to, um, to to adopt that holus bolus or anything, tenants, right, you know, there's a process that's already there that mm. can be re-geared to, to look slightly more ambitiously at the sorts of things that we would take to COP next year. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that would be a way of you know, responding to some of that, uh, you know, more domestic pressure, uh, but, but have it led, you know, um, 
by the coalition aligned with their, you know, existing policy framework. I think um, one of the other things when you think about the domestic context here in Australia is the the degree to which we have Liberal governments at the state level that are, um, are striking a different posture when it comes to climate and energy issues and really emphasising the opportunity associated uh, with uh, this space. Um, and I think, Frankie, before we started recording, you were pointing to uh, the announcements coming out of New South Wales today with um, Energy and Environment Minister uh, Matt Keane um, so staking out some, some fairly uh, ambitious targets in the, in the renewables and storage space. Yeah, that's right. So the the creation of the renewable energy zones and on what that means for kinds of infrastructure we're going to see come online over the next couple of decades as, uh, you know, I think four out of the five qualified power stations in New South Wales reach the end of their practical life. And and big surprise, it's it's framed around jobs and economic growth and, uh, you know, the kinds of messages that we're seeing deployed around the world, uh, you know, where we've got um, either settled bipartisanship on, on climate uh, or, or, or indeed uh, compelled to focus on things uh, to help boost economic recovery out of uh, COVID-inspired recessions. Um, so I think, you know, some of the, the federal the state governments here have been very smart in adopting that language. Um, we also saw last week the announcement from the South Australian government, a little bit more in our uh, patch of territory, um, around, you know, $60 million for government uh, government's own energy efficiency uh, of its buildings and upgrades there. And that, again, was focused on job creation, uh, reducing, uh, you know, the the money that taxpayers have to spend in keeping the the wheels of government turning. They're they're sensible policies and there's there's not a lot to disagree with in the way that they're put forward to the electorate. And I'd I'd add to that, what we're seeing in Australia is that there's many ways to be a conservative Mm. and uh, there's... Uh, absolutely um, conservative policies and conservative solutions uh, and liberal solutions for that matter uh, mm. on um, on climate change it's not it's not the domain exclusively of the left uh, which could bring us around to the United States and uh, the question of whether uh, that is going to be uh, a phenomenon there as well uh, and I'll just add that the uh, the revolution in uh, attitudes and perceptions of what is uh, doable and economical and, and profitable uh, in Australian business and industry that uh, we've seen in this space in recent years has been happening in the United States as well. Uh, the business community has been, uh, in many respects, gearing up to respond to uh, a, a much more active uh, on climate uh, presidency. Uh, and we may well see proposals and solutions emerging from that quarter, mm. uh, from the US Chamber and from uh, other business groupings that uh, offer a, a, another pathway for you know, possible negotiations between the, the parties in addition to the uh, very social justice-oriented Green New Deal and the very public spending-oriented uh, core proposals of uh, of the recent election campaign. Uh, so 
We'll see. We will see. Um, and uh, we had uh, actually had Meg McDonald, who's the um, you know, climate and energy luminary, who's had various roles over the journey, including with the uh, with the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and, uh, and Arena, um, on the podcast uh, several episodes ago, describing um, the role that that uh, she played when she was in the EUS, um, sort of working with some of the business groups that contributed to the thinking that um, ended up with Waxman Markey. Um, and there is a there is a history um, of uh, business groups trying to play a constructive role in in uh, in the US uh, on these topics, as indeed there is here in Australia. Um, look at who I'm talking to. <laughs> um, and so you know that is a a, a, a fruitful avenue to uh, to uh, pursue. Um, perhaps just in closing, though, uh, sort of it's interesting doing the compare and contrast between. Uh, Australia uh, and the US uh, um, and the situations that we find ourselves in. Um, uh, if one was um, interested in, in uh, forging a new consensus um, on these topics, uh, I think I'd rather be in Australia than the US right now. I feel like the prospects of us finding some middle ground um, uh, on these topics, um, notwithstanding the, the last uh, 10 or 12 years of, uh, of discord, it seems like there, there are more building blocks there to work with here in Australia. Um, whether you're looking, you're looking at the processes that are available to us at the federal level um, over the next uh, uh, six to twelve months, tenant or the uh, um, the, the the different models that are, are being um, uh, shown to us from some of those state governments uh, in, uh, particularly in South Australia, New South Wales. There's cause for some optimism, I would have thought, um, that uh, we can uh, stake out some ground in the sensible centre and um, make more progress in the next decade than perhaps we have in the last. There's definitely a lot of consensus uh, among uh, governments, among stakeholders, uh, a lot in the community, and we have a political system that encourages people to uh, to moderate and to work in the centre. Uh, and a political system that allow, you know, makes it possible to do something mm. uh, quite often. Uh, it, is, it is much more difficult in the US to do anything uh, and uh, I think there will absolutely be a collision uh, over there between high hopes and uh, the, the, the fact that most stuff can't pass Congress uh, and uh, the executive authority can't do everything and the courts uh, will cut a lot of things out. Um, and they're going to have hard yards over there, uh, even without even taking into account how hard they've been hit by co- the coronavirus. So we're an apolitical organisation, but I think I'm allowed to say Australia is the best place to be. <laughs> Tenant Reid from the Australian Industry Group, nailing his colours to the mask. Uh, uh, Frankie, any final thoughts from you? Uh, yeah, I, I find myself feeling hopeful about where we might be going in, in the domestic conversation uh, on climate. And I would just add uh, a little like what Tenant said about you know our system really prevailing in delivering results most of the time. Mm. We find ourselves debating, you know, the, the, the couple of things, you know, that, that don't have bipartisan support that, that come up for, for discussion. We, we, we pass a lot of legislation in this country that never really mm. makes it into the news. And, and there has been, um, you know, indulge myself in a second here to focus on, on my sector, um, 
a, a really strong track record over the past five to ten years uh, of of policy making with the agreement of the federal and all state and territory governments progressing work on energy efficiency and and the built environment. Mm. So, so some of this stuff has been happening, um, you know, under under the radar, and and will I think continue to do so. Um, so, so I'm I'm hopeful that some of those sector specific initiatives, um, you know, will, will be given more strength over the next little while uh, with a framing around economic recovery. I think there's still enormous potential um, for that in in Australia because next year, when Job Keeper and Job Seeker are either scaled back or or lifted, um, we are going to see. You know the the need for government to to rethink how it, how it's going to to stimulate the economy moving forward, uh, and and so from from my patch, um, thinking about the role of the construction uh, and building sector, there's a, there's enormous prospects to you know to drive action in that space that advance not just economic outcomes, uh, but also. Uh, the sorts of things we're talking about that come under a, a clean recovery. So I'm really hopeful that you know, as the economic um, situation really comes into focus over the mm. next six months, uh, there will be uh, an opening uh, of the, you know, of the of the mind on on you know what what the government will consider lending support to. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well said. Well, uh, thank you both for a really fascinating conversation. Um, our, our listeners probably won't be surprised to hear this isn't the first wonky conversation about US politics the three of us have had over the journey, but certainly the first we've caught on tape, and it was a lot of fun to do so. So thank you, Frankie. Thanks, Luke, and thanks, Tennant. Pleasure as always. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find all of us on Twitter. Tenant is at Tenant Reed. Frankie is at Frankie Moskovich. And my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management and demand response, you can follow the Energy Efficiency Council at EE Council. If Twitter is not your thing, you can email the team. The address is firstfuel at eec.org.au and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And of course, many episodes of First Fuel are broadcast as they're recorded, so you can jump on Zoom and listen in live for a full listing of upcoming recording times. Visit eec.org.au forward slash podcasts. For now, it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon. Thank you.